Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu lcsi. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hi everyone, Ki Sung here with another episode of Stories Teachers Share. This week we're bringing you a story about the powerful relationship between a high school basketball coach and his former player. And later in this episode, we'll hear stories from you, our podcast listeners, who called us, wrote us, and shared stories about teaching. I um, used to keep a list of ridiculous questions that kids would ask in class, usually having nothing to pertain to the math that I'm teaching at the time. Keep those stories coming. Okay, let's get to class. We want you to stretch outside your comfort zone all the time. And if you do that, is there an outside chance you may fail? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you pull yourself up, you get up and you do it again. This biology classroom is where I met Jim Clark. It has the typical black lab stations at the back, with a semicircle of desks in front. And the walls are plastered with motivational quotes and posters of famous scientists and athletes. Clark is telling a new class of Arroyo High sophomores that struggling through setbacks is a big part of his class. And when Clark gets on this track, he almost always brings up Marcus Williams. His picture is uh, above that speaker. That's the picture when he played basketball for me. His name is Marcus Williams. He graduated from here. He went to Dominican University in San Rafael. Most of you have never heard of it. It's heck of small. He graduated from that and then applied to medical school. He got rejected from medical school, medical school 17 times. 18th time he got accepted. He uh, lives with his mom, never met his dad. Great guy, good basketball player, obviously. And uh, now he's an ER doctor at Highlands Hospital in Oakland. You can hear how emphatic he gets when he tells the story. He's slapping his hands together to make his point. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and you're listening to Stories Teachers Share, a podcast from MindShift and KQED. Today, I want to tell you the story of Marcus Williams and how he became a doctor. Here's some of the backstory. Marcus Williams is not a former student of Jim Clark's. Clark was actually the school's basketball coach back then, and Marcus played for him in high school. His work ethic was always strong, and he had some decent size, and uh, he had a pretty high IQ. So you kind of put that together, and you think, okay, this kid's got a chance to be a pretty good player. Clark could see potential in Marcus, although at the time, Marcus didn't always understand that. When he looks back, he describes Clark this way. 
I really kind of just remember him being, to put it nicely, just a real hard ass. Uh, whenever somebody wasn't practicing well, he always tells us to go home and watch Oprah. So those are kind of the things that I remember whenever I'm tiddling around and not doing something. I always tell myself either I'm going to work or I'm going to go home and watch Oprah. So some things have stuck for a long time, definitely. Clark was a tough coach, and he pushed Marcus. It paid off. His senior year, Marcus was voted Player of the Year, and since he had a good GPA, he had some options for college. St. Mary's had a look, and UOP showed a little bit of interest, but you know, a lot of kids want to say I played Division I basketball, but he wouldn't have played very much. He'd have been one of guys, and he wouldn't have gotten a lot of time. I really just wanted to play basketball. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, I don't know if I ever thought I was an NBA player, but I definitely thought I could play overseas or something like that and then, you know, work my way in maybe. You know, I wanted to go to a big school. The problem was he just wasn't, you know, he just wasn't enough. He wasn't quick enough or big enough. He just didn't have the whole package to be able to go uh, lots of places. You can hear there how Coach Clark had a really tough line to walk. He didn't want to crush Marcus's hoop dreams, but he did want to set him up for other options if basketball didn't work out. And maybe this is where Coach Clark had to step back a little bit and think about what Marcus needed as a whole person. The teacher in him thought, in fact, he knew that Marcus could do well at a smaller school and Dominican University was offering him a scholarship. It turned out to be a good thing that Marcus stayed in the Bay Area because during his junior year, his mom got cancer. I spent a lot of time with her in the hospital, um, you know, kind of getting ready uh, for the number of procedures that she had to go through. So, you know, just watching her go through stuff with doctors and seeing how that interaction kind of made her feel, you know, it kind of just sparked a little interest in me. But something else is happening to Marcus in this moment as well. It's in the way he thinks about his place in the world and his future. Marcus starts putting his dreams of playing pro in perspective. I think I got a little smarter and understood that basketball was a big game with a lot of people that were much better than me at it. So I started to hedge my bets a little bit. Marcus is watching his mom have these interactions with doctors where she's not really getting the information she needs in a way she can understand it. And she's scared. She ended up meeting this really, really, really good oncologist and just watching that interaction uh, and how he just kind of made her feel so much better about the situation and maybe it was the process of watching her go through bad doctors to a good doctor that maybe made it more interesting. So you hear that? He's looking at doctors in a cancer unit and he's thinking, I could do this. This is a big moment. Nobody, least of all his mom, would have thought Marcus would become a doctor. And before we go any further, I want to make sure you know Marcus's mom, Iris Basquine, is in remission and she says, all things considered, she's doing pretty well. I'm dealing with um, little heart issues. So the ailment I have now is due from the chemo and the medicine and stuff, and it just kind of weakens your heart. She deserves a lot of credit here. She and Clark both saw the potential in Marcus, and they both saw how success might give him a big head. Listen to how they tag team a situation where Marcus was getting a little too cocky. Coach Clark was trying to tell me Marcus has got this attitude all of a sudden. And I start seeing red. And I remember us walking to the car and getting in. And I screamed and hollered at him so loud. He has never seen me like that. Coach Clark was such a big role in his life at Arroyo. This is somebody that's going to help you, you know? You don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, sort of. He wasn't feeding them, but, you know. <laughs> You know, and I just knew Coach Clark was a good person to be in his life. And I just didn't want Marcus to mess that up. 
Iris saw in Marcus's basketball skills the raw material for success at whatever he ended up doing. And he did become a doctor, so I don't think she's wishing things had turned out differently. You can tell she's pretty proud of him. My son's a doctor. If we're out in the street or store, I work it into the conversation. And he hates it. Just, I think if he could really tell me off, he would. You can tell she's not upset Marcus didn't become an NBA star. Coach Clark says that even though Marcus was really good in high school and in college, his mom was never a typical basketball mom. She was never about defining her kid as a star on the court. I'm glad he liked it. It kept him focused. He knew he had to do great to stay on the team. She just wanted Marcus to learn to be a good man, to take responsibility, to be a good teammate. I think she saw that Coach Clark was helping him with those things on and off the court. He's not playing basketball, but he's still, all the values that mom wanted him to exhibit on the basketball court is what he's exhibiting now. It was probably the driving force behind his success that no matter what I'm doing, I need to be a good teammate. I need to stop making excuses. I need to pick myself up and do better next time. Um, that I'm going to learn from that mistake, you know, and then I'm going to try and never let it happen again. I'll make more mistakes, but not that same mistake over and over. Marcus was really lucky to have such a united team of supporters because once he decided to go to medical school, it wasn't going to get any easier. He had to work really hard to get in. You know, you put so much time into studying. It was like, you know, literally seven to seven to eight months of studying for one test, you know, um, and then not to do so well on the test and then to apply and then just get denied by like 20 plus schools. Marcus has this internal engine. It's what his mom saw. And then Coach Clark helped jumpstart. I can't say that I've never quit on anything, but things that I really thought I could do, and this was something I really thought I could do, you know, I've never really given up on. Marcus was living with his mom, which he says was a huge load off his shoulders. And Coach Clark was around, listening to him complain and giving advice. If I was doing some coaching and, and I needed a guy, or if I didn't even need a guy, I'd pretend I needed a guy, and, uh, you know, trying to give him a little bit of jobs to get some extra money, to, and just to stay connected and say, hey, don't give up. Because, he, you know, he's just the kind of kid you always want to do. He's not a kid anymore, but he's the kind of person that you always want to do something for. Because you know once he gets there, he's going to be great. Iris feels pretty guilty that Marcus didn't get into medical school the first time. During that year, she was in and out of the hospital and was really sick. I was really glad that he tried again because I would have always had on my heart that I messed up his first time. And there's no way anybody could have told me anything different. The second time he applied, Marcus got into medical school and went down to UC Irvine. After that, he came back to Oakland for his residency at Highland Hospital, and he started visiting Clark's high school classes. Marcus tells the kids his story and tries to give them hope that being an African-American male from Oakland with no dad doesn't have to be the only thing people know about you. I mean, here's this guy who in his own mind was a basketball player, not an academic hotshot, although admittedly he always had that strong GPA. But now you see why that picture is up on Jim Clark's wall. Not because he was an exceptional AP bio student with pre-med ambitions, but actually the opposite. Because he was, like many students, hopeful but uncertain about the future. I think he sees in himself the fears and frustrations of lots of other kids. And you know, I've made it clear to him that so many of our kids are insecure and their place in the world they see being taken by other people that don't necessarily look like them. And so your story is, com is compelling, and they need to hear it because if they can see you did it, then they, it gives them hope that maybe they can do it too. And he's come and talked to our classes, and he's the highlight of the year. 
When it really comes down to it, I think Marcus inspires Clark. You look at those kids that you had over your career and you remember some of them and that's that's why you teach, you know, because of kids like Marcus and coach too, you know, um, particularly coaching, especially today. It's a thankless job. Every parent thinks that they know more than the coach does. Every kid thinks they're going to play in college and you get no money and very little administrative backing. And so you have those kids that this is why I, this is why I do it. And Marcus is just the reason why people stay in teaching and coaching. Coming up, more stories from our listeners. I heard you guys are looking for some stories, so um, here's mine. Stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Stories Teachers Share. We just heard the story of Coach Clark and Marcus Williams, who've been friends now for over a decade. What I love about that story is the mutual trust and respect they have for one another. We all remember that one teacher or mentor who made a difference in our lives, but it's easy to forget the impact students have on teachers. Over the past few weeks, we've been asking all of you to call in with your stories, the funny ones, the sad ones, and even the downright outrageous ones. We've received some pretty great stories, so keep them coming. Here's Wayne Lash, a high school math teacher, who called us to share this experience. I heard you guys are looking for some stories, so um, here's mine. I um, used to keep a list of ridiculous questions that kids would ask in class, usually having nothing to pertain to the math that I'm teaching at the time. Stuff like, uh, how much would you have to pay if you hadn't paid your taxes in seven years? Or, is there words without the letter A in them? Stuff like that. Um, Kids knew the list, and um, a few years ago, uh, I had a class with the the high school that I teach out of mixed cultures and all those sort of things. Anyway, I had some kids... And uh, one girl used a slur out loud. I don't remember exactly the circumstances, but I asked her outside and told her what I had heard from some other folks to uh, say to folks that just, uh, you know, whatever circles you run in where that's appro- where you think that's appropriate, it's not appropriate here inside class, and it, you need to keep that somewhere else. She agreed, and then um, it seemed to be fine. There, And then a day or so later, uh, another kid in class used a different slur, and so I addressed the whole class and said the same thing, that, you know, you need to watch your language while you're in class and be more uh, professional. 
And so I made that statement, and one of the girl from the day before asked me why I was so against racism. And uh, a few of the other kids in class said, Mr. Lash, Mr. Lash, put that on the list. Put that on the list. So uh, that's my story. Uh, Thanks. Why are you so against racism, Mr. Lash? This is hilarious that the kids are trying to get out of doing math by asking questions they think will take a lot of time to discuss. I mean, I don't know. He could maybe get some math mileage out of that tax question. We got another story from Alex Wong, who is now a community college professor. But for a while after graduate school, he wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. His story questions a lot of the assumptions we have about going to college. My name's Alex Wong. I'm a physics instructor at the College of San Mateo. Uh, But I want to tell you a story about um, my first post-secondary education job. I had been uh, doing some consulting work for a while and decided I wanted to move in a different direction after I got uh, sort of fortuitously laid off. Uh, And so I was sitting there on unemployment uh, in my pajamas. And I think about how much I had enjoyed teaching um, as a a graduate student. And so I was looking at uh, some website that actually the uh, unemployment insurance people had had referred me to. And it had some listing about uh, one of those for-profit colleges was looking for someone to teach something called problem solving. And I didn't really know what problem solving was, but uh, I had the minimum requirements, so I sent in an application. And somehow, about a month later, I was being handed a book on teaching problem solving and told, basically, good luck, go ahead and teach this course to our incoming students. This is a course uh, meant to teach them critical thinking skills to all the incoming students at this particular for-profit institution. Uh, so it had a lot of physics, so that was good. I knew how to do physics. Had some logic, uh, had some of this critical thinking, which I wasn't really sure what it was, but I figured I could probably figure it out. So I show up on the first day, and I do what I had done uh, when I was teaching and uh, doing TAing in grad school, and that's just break the students into small groups and have them work on the various different problems. And that had worked great at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, but I pretty soon discovered that it wasn't going to work quite as well at this new institution. The problem in a nutshell was that my students were all over the place in terms of how prepared they were. Some of the students had had as much math as calculus and were certainly solid in algebra, and they would fly through this stuff without any problems whatsoever. Uh, Other of the students, I remember uh, in one in particular, uh, struggling even with fractions. And so having them work in groups um, really ended up with a lot of difficult situations because um, the more advanced students would finish right away and be impatiently waiting for the more beginner students to to make their way through the thing. And the beginner students, of course, would be incredibly frustrated. So the class was bumpy, to say the least. And I was stressed and I was having trouble. And I remember in particular some of the really struggling students. Um, they're paying thousands of dollars for for this class and wondering what they were going to do and how I was going to help them. Uh, one older gentleman in particular, probably 55, 60, uh, coming back to school to be a drafter. And I remember he just did not understand fractions. And I remember trying to tutor him after class, uh, going through uh, just basic fraction, multiplication, and addition, and him just not being able to grasp it. Uh, It was something that he had seen 50 years prior, and it just, his mind wasn't able to get there. And he's and I just remember how difficult that was because because he clearly wanted to get a better career for himself. I don't know what his background was, but he was trying. He was being told what he needed to do uh, by society to go and get education. But 
I don't think he was ever going to become a drafter. I think he did end up passing the course, but by the skin of his teeth, and it's hard to imagine um, where he went from there. And so we stumbled towards the end of the class. Uh, some people passed, some people didn't pass. Uh, I left after that semester, so I don't know what happened to many of the students. Um, some, I think, were success stories. Others were not. And I do keep on thinking back, particularly to the students who, um, who weren't able to make it. And I sort of wonder what the message that we were sending them was, uh, what they're supposed to get out of that higher education. Um, we were told them that they were supposed to go into higher education, but I don't think never gave them the tools to, uh, to get there. And me as a first-year teacher certainly didn't have the tools to, uh, to help them out. So uh, on that fairly, fairly depressing note, I think I'll end this little story. That story has so many education issues wrapped up in one. I mean, most classroom teachers I've talked to at every level struggle with the wide range of learners in their classrooms. And plenty of others are thinking about whether college is the right path for every student, especially as the cost of college skyrockets and we hear more about the repercussions of student debt. It also shows how the issues we see in the K-12 space don't necessarily go away by the time students are in college. So thanks for that story, Alex. Some of you may have heard Sadie Guthrie's story about being a first-year teacher. On Sundays, she cried so much thinking about the challenging week ahead that she called them wet Sundays. Robin Bates-Romley wrote on our Facebook page, I've been teaching since 1982 and still cry on Sundays sometimes. All teachers should be supportive of each other and collaborate often. Never get so comfortable in this profession that you think you know it all. Mary Ellen Dunn's response to the story was more solutions-oriented. She writes, I don't think a first-year teacher should be alone in a classroom. I think it should be spent working alongside a high-quality mentoring teacher. Robin actually responded to Mary Ellen, writing, Very few first-year teachers have a clue how to set routines and expectations at the beginning of the year. Wouldn't it be great if there were a coach whose job was to take the lead for a new teacher's first month? Usually mentor teachers are too busy in their own classrooms at this time, but if those expectations are not set from the beginning, there can be problems all year long. And it all comes back around to coaching. You've been listening to Stories Teachers and Coaches Share, a production of MindShift and KQED. Stories Teachers Share is produced by me, Katrina Schwartz, and Ki Sung. Our editor is Jacob Conrad. Our team includes Seth Samuel, Sarah Sawyer, Elizabeth Sermarco, and John Mormon. Special thanks this week to Marcus Williams, Jim Clark, and Iris Basquine for spending some time with me. We'd also like to high-five all the coaches out there. You make a big difference in kids' lives. If you have a story, big or small, that you'd like to share, email us at mindshiftstories at kqed.org. Or pull out your smartphone, record your story using the voice memo, and email that file to us, just like Alex Wong. Also, if you have a minute, we could use your help getting the word out about the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and write a review. Let us know what you think. That way, we can help find the stories you love, and you won't miss out on any future episodes. Thanks so much for listening. On the next episode of our podcast, we take you inside the journal of a middle school student who thinks a lot about his favorite teacher. The only problem is, is that I'm wondering about coming in too much. I really like his homeroom, but I'm worried he might be getting annoyed with me. Life is so complicated. <laughs> Stay with us. It's simple. Stories teachers share in partnership with the Mortified Podcast. 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Special access to cool events, behind the scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org/slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. <laughs> 